Well, welcome all you wiretappers out there back here in the studio of Gangland Wire. I have a little different sort of a interview today than, than maybe what you're used to, but I think you'll find it it, it uh, uh, will uh, titillate your interest. Uh, it's a, kind of a missing person story that started in Kansas City and ended up on the uh, East Coast on the Atlantic Seashore, beef South Carolina. I'm not sure. Uh, but a local guy named Jim Cosgrove, who is actually, turns out we have a lot of mutual friends, I think, and one in particular, Terrence O'Malley, who I've done the Mafia Film Festival with over the last several years, uh, in common. And, and so I just wanted to, I wanted you guys to know about this book I first read about. It and I thought, well, that's fascinating. That's, I don't remember that story, but it was uh, it was a really interesting story out of Kansas City. And, and the guy that wrote it is really interesting. His name is Jim Cosgrove. Welcome, Jim. Thank you. I appreciate you, being, uh, you inviting me on, Gary. Yeah, now, now, Jim Cosgrove is better known in Kansas City as Mr. Stinky Feet. Now, you don't think Mr. Stinky Feet would be writing a book called Ripple, The Long Strange Search for a Killer. Now, would you? <laughs> Some some people have a hard time wrapping their head around that. <laughs> I did too. I first read the newspaper article about you writing this book. I thought, wow. So I really like looked, read the article close. And I thought, what is he doing here? This is, <laughs> but right. you've got skills and uh, you put those skills to work and you got some investigation skills. I can see from reading yeah. through the book. And so it's, uh, it's just a great story, uh, Jim. I, I really Thank appreciate you. it. Appreciate it. Now you're you're but your main thing is the guitar and music and and writing right. music and performing for kids primarily and you're you're immensely popular entertainer at children's programs here in the Kansas City area. Yeah, so I'm heading into my 25th year performing for families. So I write and perform music for children and their adults and I get to travel around the country doing it and and it's who knew I never expected to to be doing this, but here I am all 25 years in and it's yeah, great. Really. I love it. Now, is there a website out there? People wanted to, to hire you or you bet jimcosgrove.com or mrstinkyfeet.com. All right. Either one on. will get you, get you there. All right. Yeah. And you can see, Oh, we got, I got videos, a bunch of videos on YouTube and yeah. stream, stream the music wherever you stream music. Yeah. Just, just go to YouTube and, and Google Mr. Stinky Feet and you're going to find Jim Performer. I'm sure of that. Yeah. <laughs> and he's immensely popular. I mean, if, if you have a, a, a program that you want somebody to do for children, especially, he, he's immensely entertaining. We have a lot of fun. That's for sure. <laughs> we played but, a tree lighting. My band and I played a tree lighting ceremony on Saturday and we were outside and it was very cold. So it's hard to, when your fingers are frozen, hard to play the guitar. Yeah. Well, let's talk about the book. Yeah, let's talk about the book. So Ripple's the name of the book, A Long, Strange Search for a Killer. Uh, and and the family that you're writing about, I know, I mean, I don't know them personally, but I know a lot, many people that do know them personally because uh, they're a Kansas City family, the McGonigal family. And they have a, uh, it's a large family in Midtown Kansas City. And they have a, you know, what was a corner store at one time that's gotten, a, had gotten a little bit bigger over the years and became immensely yeah. popular for special specialty meats that are meat cutter and then started selling sausages and sandwiches. And I, I've eaten a few sandwiches out at the picnic table out yeah. by the front door. So you knew the, the children growing up. Did you know that? Yeah. So the McGonagall's uh, yeah. And like you said, so they've been, they've, 
they ran McGonagall's Market on the corner of 79th and Ward Parkway in Kansas City for 70 years. It was mm. really the most popular meat market on the south side of Kansas City. Yeah. And their family grew up in Brookside, where I grew up. And we were one of many very large Irish Catholic families. So there are eight kids in my family and there are nine kids in the McGonagall family. And many of my siblings kind of lined up with the, you know, the McGonagall kids. I'm the youngest. So I was not in school with any of the McGonagall's, but um, so this is their story. And their son, Frank, who was number six of nine, disappeared in 1982. He took, took off from the house. He was 26 years old, living at home. So his parents didn't think much of it, really. You know, it was just figured he was off on an adventure as he was, uh, uh, as he did often. So they didn't think much of it, but when he didn't call or let him know after a couple of days, they started to get suspicious that something was up and everybody in the neighborhood kind of knew what was going on. We, you know, as we're in a tight knit community like that, it was as if one of my cousins had disappeared. Um, so everybody was kind of intent on finding out what happened to Frank, but this went on for nine years. <laughs> they looked for him for nine years, didn't know where he you know, what had happened and searching for any kind of clues. Right. So uh, in the meantime, most of us went on with our lives. Right. I, I was in high school at the time. I graduated from high school, went to college, moved to New Mexico. I was writing at the newspaper out there when I got reintroduced to the story through my mother. She kind of reminded me about what had happened. So I don't know how far you want me to get into, but I'll, I'll let that, you know. Just getting ready to, to yeah. add something here. You know, that, well, Jim, that missing persons thing uh, as a policeman, uh, it's just really difficult. You have distraught families calling in and, and wanting you to, to call out the cavalry and, and search for their loved one. And it's when they've just like, they're, you know, an adult and they have transportation and, and yeah. they just disappear you know, there's just there. First of all, there's nowhere to even start. You know, it's, well, check all the bus stations. And the, you know, right. that's TV stuff. I guess you can, but nobody at the bus station is going to remember him more than unless he was really uh, distinctive. And this kid had a car, if I remember yeah. right. And, you know, the, that's right. There just there's nothing to do, absolutely nothing to do. Write a report, put him in the computer. Right. So if he gets stopped somewhere and I have stopped people and, you know, they said there was a missing person's uh, uh input in you know, something i don't remember the exact language now but there's a missing person's yeah. input out there and the computer on them so you tell them hey you know if somebody's reported you as missing you need to go back home and and find out a little more information about what they're doing if they're not in any kind of danger and then you maybe call back in the missing persons unit and uh, write a report and, and sit it down there and you know and they can right. want to do whatever you can arrest them for just being missing and so it's a, it's a difficult deal now, kid. Like well, this. and you met, and you mentioned the computer at the time when he disappeared. There was no national crime computer. It, uh, it didn't come online until the next year for missing yeah. persons at all. Yeah, right. I didn't even I didn't so even this, know that. Huh? Yeah, yeah. But yeah. it did come online after after that. Right. But so if they got caught back before that national database was installed, if somebody could be in jail in another state, another city or, you know, in the hospital or, you know, be uh, wandered around with amnesia right. or been hit in the head or injured and they didn't know where they came from. There's no way to check their name and say, hey, well, you're missing from Kansas City. Yeah. 
Yeah, I never thought about that. But it's yeah. uh it's a difficult case for for police departments. So I believe these guys hired a private detective after a while, didn't they? Do some well, uh so they they did not actually they they had filed missing persons case in Kansas City, Missouri. And then they were not getting much traction. So they also filed one in Kansas City, Kansas, because one of the relatives, one of the McGonagall uh, kids was married to a police officer from KCK. Oh, yeah. So he he was able to to kind of fudge fudge it a little bit and say that he was last seen in KCK and and entered that. Well, which is a move that ended up helping them find him. So nine years later, so they spent nine years looking for him, right? Nine years later, a uh, uh, there was an officer who was reassigned to the missing persons division in uh, Kansas City, Kansas. He went through some old file, uh, filing cabinet, came across seven or eight um, unsolved cases. And he asked if he could look into them. And they said, yeah, sure, go crazy. So he, he uh, entered the information into the computer and he got a hit back on I think all but two of them. And one of them was Frank's case. And he, they found a body that matched the description. And then he sent the dental records and the dental records matched up mm-hmm. to uh, verify that this was Frank's body. And it he had been found, his body had been found about five days after he left home, seven days after he left home. Wow. In uh, a little fishing village just south of Myrtle Beach called Merle's Inlet in Maybe some of your readers know because it is a popular uh, now retirement destination. There are golf courses there, and beautiful homes and condos. But at the time, it was a pretty gritty uh, fishing village there uh, with some a lot of nefarious activity, as it turns out. So, so his body had been found five or six days after he actually was disappeared, but they didn't yes. know who it was. I'll be done. So the coroner and the sheriff in this little, t- you know, this uh, county has spent. Well, for nine years, they didn't know who this John Doe was. Yeah. Huh. And they kept his, actually, they kept his body in the morgue for five years. Really? Because it was an open case. And then uh, finally then had him buried in a John Doe grave uh, there in the county. I was wondering what happened to those bodies and how long they keep them and that you find that you can't really link up to anybody. Right. And in this day of DNA, why it's easy, even easier to find people. But, sure. but back then, that was pre-DNA uh, stuff. So they find his body now. Did you go back there uh, in your search when so you in, got into this? And, and Yes. Yeah. So in 1995, I got on the story. I was working, uh, writing for the Albuquerque Journal in New Mexico as a journalist. And I went back to school while I was working at the paper to get a master's in creative nonfiction writing. And I wanted to do something for my master's thesis. So I asked the McGonagall's if I could tell their story. So I went into it as a journalist trying to stay out of the story. Just, yeah, uh, which that's my job, right? Just to tell the story and not have an opinion, just stay out of it. And so I went to, uh, down to South Carolina and spent some time down there talking to locals and digging into files to, Sheriff's department let me look through. They didn't have much. They had a handwritten police report and a few effects that yeah. they found on Frank's body. And so I started started poking around and digging around. And they had a couple suspects, but nobody ever had enough evidence to pin it on them. 
And I got in there and I realized, you know, everybody in town was convinced it was this one kid that did it. He was 18 mm-hmm. years old. He was a troublemaker. But the more I dug into it, I thought it, does, it didn't add up to me. So um, I was poking around down there and I just happened to meet uh, a woman and her friend. Two women moved in across the hall from me in this bed and breakfast while I was staying down there. Um, turns out that one of them had worked with law enforcement, local law enforcement and the FBI to help find missing persons hmm. and unsolved cases. And her name is Carol Williams, fascinating woman. She does not like to be called a psychic. <laughs> she prefers to be called an energy reader. An energy and reader. so, uh. yeah. So as a journalist and, and she, it was just quite a chance meeting. Like I said, she moved across the hall from me. So we struck up a conversation. We ended up going out for dinner that night and just chatting. And um, So, yeah, as a journalist, I was certainly trained to be skeptical. So yeah. I yeah. said, I don't know what your deal is, but I'm willing to hear you out. Yeah. Now, well, she wasn't there for this case. She just had no, she and her she friend were down there. They you were down there for talking. And they were just you down tell there her what you're there for. And she's just, okay. All right. Yeah, I got so, you. <laughs> yeah. She and her friend were just down there for the weekend, uh, uh, having some fun. And, um, and yeah, so I told him what I, why I was there. And then her friend said, Hey, you know, Carol here, she helps. <laughs> she's worked with the FBI. She's worked. So it ends up, she'd worked on a couple high profile cases and, huh. uh, but always of course in the background yeah. because, Nobody Unfortunately, doesn't like to admit that no. they would consult with somebody right. like that because it right. brings them out of the woodwork. They already yes. are coming out of the woodwork in high profile cases and just trying to get some money out of it. So, yeah. Yeah. And she uh, she never takes money for anything she does, never has. Um, and so I gave her t- I said, hey, I don't know what your deal is, but maybe you can help me. So she went with me to the woods where they found, found Frank's body. And she recreated the entire murder scene for me in crazy detail. Mm. I mean, she gave me descriptions of the people who were there, height, hair color, eye color, a few possible names. She gave me information about the McGonagall family that she would never have known. The fact that Frank had had a fight with his brother the day before he left. And he also had an argument with his mother the morning he left. She knew about that. She took, you know, she's, Picked up on that. She told me about something that the the killer had still had in his possession that he took from Frank. And uh, anyway, so she told me all this stuff. I recorded it all, a little mini cassette recorder. And over the next couple of days, a lot of the things she told me came true. And a lot of things, meaning I've met many of the people that she described. And I saw several of the things that she described. Uh, she left town. She and her friend went back home. They were from North Carolina, so they went back. But I, I stayed there for another several days. And a couple of days after she left, I met the guy that she identified as the killer. Mm-hmm. And he was on my list of people to talk to. He was a friend of, of these this other suspect. And when it, he he turned around and looked at me, the description she gave me was spot on. And I knew really? it was this guy. I just, I, yeah, it freaked me, <laughs> freaked me out. Uh, so, um, 
Anyway, I had a conversation with this guy and then a short conversation because I didn't particularly want to be around him. We were standing in a uh, uh, an oyster shack down by the creek and he was shucking oysters with an oyster knife. <laughs> so I thought, you yeah, know, I might not want to hang around here much longer. Uh, so I got some information out of him and, and then I went back to the sheriff and, uh, or the, the, uh, uh, detective sheriff's detective who was working on the case told him what I heard. And he said, you know, I've, I'm familiar with law enforcement officers using psychics and we've never used one. Uh, but he said, you know, if you can't prove it in a court of law, there's nothing you can do. And I, I knew that. Yeah. But he also told me at the time, he said, one of the hardest things in this business is that when you know something to be true in your heart and you can't prove it, the hardest thing to do is to turn your back and walk away. And he said, I suggest you do just that. <laughs> so it was his subtle way of telling me to get out of town. Yeah. You're not welcome here anymore. <laughs> now, now, was this little area, it was like a small town and everybody knew everybody. And now, yes, an unincorporated town. Yeah. Uh, just okay. Oh, yeah. Town. Been there. And uh, we call it Blue Summit over here, Dog Pass in the east side of Kansas City. And so now, was anybody admitting that they remembered Frank McGonigal at all? Um, well, they all knew him uh, as the boy in the woods. They knew the case. They knew the they dead knew. boy, but no, was anybody they, they talking about, boy. I remember when he came to town or he yeah. was driving this car and. Okay. You know, he, he came into town likely he left on a uh, Monday. Yeah. Monday morning. And he likely rolled into town probably Saturday. They found his body the next Monday, the next mm -hmm. two days later. So uh, it likely he, he probably wasn't there 24 hours before he was killed. Well, uh, it, so it very few people probably encountered him. Um, but after that, boy, yeah, everybody knew him as the boy in the woods. Hmm. So motive, did uh, the psychic have an idea about a motive? Yes, she she did. She uh, suggested that uh, that Frank had asked these guys if he could buy some pot. Hmm. And these guys said, yeah, sure. Uh, but we got to. And he said, well, great, let's go. And he said, well, I can't. We, you give me the money. We'll go into town and pick it up we'll bring it back because the guy that sells it doesn't want anybody to know who he is. Yeah. So uh, Frank reached into his sock where he was keeping a huge wad of cash. That's uh, where he kept his money. Yeah. And the psychic picked up on that and his siblings corroborated that said, yep, that's where he kept his money. Hmm. And he peeled off a $20 bill, gave it to these guys. One of them legitimately left to go uh, buy the weed. And then, um, the other guy stayed behind and he's the one who saw the money, little 25 caliber pistol, asked Frank for his money. Frank told him to get lost. So the guy shot him. Mm -hmm. And when the other guy came back with the pot, he was like, what happened? Yeah. So then they scrambled to clean up the, the scene. Yeah. So were they part of, I mean, these were like local toughs, I guess, and kind of. A and really, I don't even know toughs. They were local uh, teenagers who were just, you know, just troublemakers. You know, they, uh, the older Tommy, the older one, he, uh, 
was, he had a long rap sheet. He was, but he did, he did a lot of breaking and entering, passing bad checks, uh, setting fires in, in people's sheds, stealing bicycles and um, that sort of thing. And the local, all the sheriff's deputies knew him, of course, because they had encountered him many times. Uh, but they, he was also the nephew of a guy named Paul Nance, who was the local, for all practical purposes, the local mafia boss for this area. The Dixie Mafia in this is instant, but <laughs> indeed, and, and Paul, yeah, Paul, he was a character. He he owned a very popular uh, seafood restaurant, and which still bears his name down there. They don't, family doesn't own it anymore, but Nance's Creek Creekfront Restaurant. And uh, Paul had a fleet of shrimp boats under his control. So that made it easy for him to run drugs in. Mm. And Merle's Inlet was unincorporated. It was an inlet from the ocean, which means there was actually, you know, a little place where you could duck in from the ocean. And and then this this whole uh, system of or or series of uh, creeks and rivers that... Mm that you could get lost in mm-hmm. and this place had a history of piracy it had a history of man during the civil war they were running they were running weapons and supplies to the south through there during prohibition they were running liquor through there during <laughs> and the drugs came yeah and, and paul was there to uh to control it all so my theory is is that paul helped his nephew clean up the crime scene yeah he doesn't want that kind of heat. He does not no. need that kind of heat. And then this kids, these other kids, anybody that got caught up in this thing, they know a lot about Paul. They may be wanting to make a deal too. So well, they yeah. just want to kick this under the rug and, and hope it right. goes away. Uh, I understand that. Yeah. Hell, so they go to Paul, they go to Uncle Paul and say, Hey, this happened. What do we do? Yeah. And he knew what to do because he'd done it plenty of times. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, that's yeah. a heck of a story, folks. You got, you got to get this book, Ripple, Long Strange Search for a Killer. It's got a lot more details and a lot more oh, yeah. stuff that went on down there in Mural, Murals, uh, Murals Inlet in uh, South Carolina. And it's right out, right outside of Myrtle Beach, you say? Or it's part of Myrtle yeah, it's Beach about, now? Yeah, it's about 10 miles south of Myrtle Beach. Okay. Between... Uh, you know, between Georgetown, which is the county seat, and, and Myrtle Beach, between Charleston and yeah, be kind of a Southern Gothic, I think, a little bit like the true true detective. If you remember that first true detective with Matthew McConaughey and uh, uh-huh. and uh, 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 Woody Harrelson and coming yes. in, a couple of state troopers coming in from outside trying to investigate some local crime like that that the local crime boss was part of the cover up on it. That would oh, be yeah, yeah, that's interesting. That's a great story. That's, yeah. And I, I mean, I, I could write a whole other story on him, Paul Nance. Yeah, I bet. I heard some crazy stories about that guy. Is he still alive? No. That's I probably mean, good. <laughs> he, had, he had a very, very unusual death. <laughs> really? So yeah. folks, look up Paul Nance or get the book here. Yeah. You're going to learn a lot more about this. Right. All right, Jim. I really appreciate There's the book, folks. Uh, I really appreciate you coming on the show. Thank and- you. I appreciate you, Gary. uh, You guys out there, uh, get this book and uh, like and subscribe to the YouTube channel. Let other people know about the channel and 
Don't forget to look out for motorcycles because you all know I ride a motorcycle. <laughs> and uh, and if you or your, any friends or relatives have a problem with PTSD and if they've been in the service, go to the VA hotline. It's on the website, VA website, and get that hotline. There's help available for you out there. Thanks a lot, guys. Thanks a lot, Jim. Thank you, Gary. Take care.